Welcome to Hacking the Hustle. This is your host, Benji Sklar, and I'm really excited to be speaking with my dear friend, Brian Ragone today. What's up, Brian? Hey, Benji. What's going on? Thanks for having me on. Of course. Brian is in Chicago. He works for UberWorks, one of Uber's marketplaces, and I consider Brian one of the most well-read, well-spoken entrepreneurs in my personal network. So really excited to have you on the podcast today. That's a lot to live up to, Benj. I got, you got it. So let's start from the top. Where are you from? Where, what, tell us your story. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my story. Where am I from? So I was born in northern New Jersey in Westwood, mm-hmm. in Bergen County. Mm-hmm. And I moved down to Florida, in Sarasota, Florida, pretty early on. I think I was only a couple months old. And so I was really raised in Sarasota, Florida, and this was in 93. So Siesta Key um, wasn't known by a lot of people, uh, but now it is. There's actually an MTV show about Siesta Key. Uh, And uh, I grew up there for 18 years before I went to college. And it it was an amazing place to to grow up. Um, You know, it's sunny a lot of the days of of the year and uh, grew up near the beach. So a lot of friends, a lot of outdoors. I played football, basketball, track, um, all kinds of sports when I was growing up. Um, so a great childhood and uh, went off to Amherst College in, in 2012, which after I graduated high school, <clears throat> played four years of, of football at Amherst where I met you. Yeah, you were a great receiver, one of the quickest guys I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so played four years. And as you know, we had some success, a couple mm. of uh, – some winning seasons there mm-hmm. and c- coming out of college um you know i, I really didn't know uh, what i wanted to do uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean amherst is kind of a fast track to some of these industries you know consulting investment banking and um, mm-hmm. i was banging my head against the wall trying to get uh, a job or an internship in one of those places and mm-hmm. um, i kind of just found a lot of resistance mm-hmm. interesting i didn't know that and so what, that, what kind that, of resistance what why were people not vibing with you when you are super smart, good looking, you're a math major, like the very, I'm poli science Spanish. I'm sure you should have been a much better candidate than I was. Uh, I, I get, I mean, good looking, I don't know. Major <laughs> for sure. Um, I got you. The, uh, the, I think the resistance came from just an in, inauthenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a person who, um, can buy into something if I if my heart is truly in it, mm-hmm. uh, and I find that I oftentimes have resistance if I if I feel like I'm not in a flow um, mm-hmm. with with the things that I'm trying to do, uh, mm-hmm. and so I, I just found a lot of resistance because I was I was doing the research and I wasn't really bought into it, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that I had the credentials right coming from mm-hmm. Amherst or being a math major, um, so I. I I also do think it's it's partially like a blessing that I found that resistance because okay. um, it, it deflected me in the right direction where mm-hmm. now I, I have a very fulfilling career. Yeah, I had the same resistance. I got a job at Goldman Sachs when I was in college because I knew how to play the game in the interviews of, tell us about yourself. What would you do uh, if we gave you a million dollars? And well, tell us about the economy. And I knew all those answers down. But when I was actually sitting at the desk at Goldman, I had, there was so much resistance from myself i had no idea why i was really even there what i was doing i never taking any finance class and that's why i ran away and moved to israel and not because of all the other reasons that i say it was the resistance of like it was an uncultured fit so and i'm happy just like you said like 
how it pushed me away to where I am now. Even though at the time you're banging your head like, oh shit, I can't believe I didn't get a job at Goldman Sachs. I'm such a loser. I'm such a failure. You know, this is years later. Yeah, those are those are some of the same thoughts that that I was having. And um, one of the things I actually gave a speech um, in a speech class that I take here in Chicago. And my first introduction speech was uh, about how I got to where I am. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about how. Um, you know, growing up in Florida, and I, I grew up with with strong parents, and they they gave me a good education. And oftentimes, it was this lifestyle that was very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that I, there wasn't much room in my life, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. I was so attached with what I was always doing or what I was always mm-hmm. achieving to just sit back and say, "Who am I, and mm-hmm. what do I want?" Wow. You know, you know, I so said, what do I care about? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to football, basketball, track, get good grades, exams, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, like on, on and on and on. Um, and, and so that, that's why I thought when football ended for me at Amherst, it was a great opportunity to think back and start reflecting on myself, mm-hmm. reflecting mm-hmm. on the things that I actually wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I recognized the resistance. And that's where I chose to go down a different path. Mm, that resonates so much with me. I also was raised on the path. You have to get good grades. You have to go to good college. You have to get a prestigious job and your resume has to be perfect and you're super competitive out there. And I'm still living that. Like I'm in law school because of that peer pressure. But now I'm finally learning who do I really want to be and what do I, what am I good at? And that's where Forge came from. But it's taken 27 years and I wish that I've, I could have had that voice in my head or that counsel. 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it's proper to take this amount of time though. I, the one great thing about um, like formal schooling is when you get to that point where you are starting to kind of be like, what, what is all this for? What do I really want to yeah. do? You have emotional maturity. You have the skill set to be uh, agile, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you're out there finding yourself, but you have all the means to do it as mm-hmm. opposed to if it happens in high school, I, like, do you, are you emotionally mature to handle adversity, all that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. So I think the timing is right always, and the timing is different for other people. Yeah. Um, but I, it seems like we've had um, similar timelines in, in, in how we found our path. Mm-hmm. So what did you do next when you graduated? Yeah, so in 2016, I graduated and uh, chose to start my own company and um, kind of do the freelance uh, consulting t- game. And mm-hmm. uh, what are the skills that you can learn the fastest? For us, it was social media, right? In 2016, mm-hmm. the whole influencer game was really on the uprise and we wanted to capitalize on that. So we got into photography, right? Videography, editing, producing, podcast uh, mm-hmm. producing, uh, all, all marketing content oriented. And we worked with a lot of influencers to mm. produce this content. Um, and we, how did we, these influencers, oh, I didn't want to cut you off there, but my question was, how do, how do influencers build an audience from wow. scratch? Uh, yeah, good question. So really like posting as much as possible is a key, mm. Um, mm. but strategic posting, right? You mm. want to find your audience because if you're, if you're posting about everything in the world, mm-hmm. um, you're not going to build loyalty with anyone. But if you can consume someone's narrative, right? Like if you can be someone's internal narrative, they will have an affinity towards that brand or that person. 
um, and start to build a connection with them, want to follow them, follow their advice, buy their products, et cetera, on the monetization mm-hmm. side. Um, but that's really how you build an audience as an influencer mm-hmm. is post relevant content, have a very specific audience that you want to attract um, and make sure everything's aligned to providing that audience uh, value. That's really good advice. I need that advice because I feel like right now I'm just posting randomly. I'm just trying to get the reps in of like, what am I doing here? And uh, I need that advice of like, okay, you need to target and figure out what your message is and build a, like a, an audience of loyalty because I'm talking to my grandma, my cousin, my aunt. Choose one and speak to them and that's where the, the, the base will grow. And, uh, the approach that, that tends to work the best is experimental. Right. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning phases, you really want to understand what sticks. Mm-hmm. Right? So you don't want to kind of put all your eggs in one basket. It may be good what you're doing in the early stages in terms of posting diverse content to tar- different target audiences and seeing how much it sticks. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you kind of want to diversify your portfolio and go with the thing that that sticks the most. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, sometimes I post and I get nine likes and sometimes I get 90 likes. It's like, oh, I'm just going to do that one again. And that's how I feel like how you learn through repetition. So what back you, to, what were you going to say? I was going to say, what, what, what posts do you find perform the best? The ones where I'm uh, sharing my story with Forage about the trials and triumphs that I'm having. Like, instead of like showboating or, or kind of flaunting, like, like selling, I'm just saying, like, I'm just storytelling. And I'm not selling anything. Like I'm not like the the person on the other side doesn't feel like oh Benji wants me to click on this button and like go to his website and sign up like none of that. And th- that's the kind of content that's uh, most engaging. And also like political. Like I, I posted something like about veganism and and my fiance is like don't post that. Like look at all the great people out there. They're not political. They play both sides of the spectrum because you don't want to cut off half the world from from being your audience just because you have one point of view. And then right. the, the counter side is like, but that's not me. That's not authentic. I have my personal beliefs and I want to share them. So it's really like, I feel like it's a balancing act. You don't see Tony Robbins talking about politics or, or, you know, you know what, you're, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. Some topics can certainly be polarizing. Um, mm-hmm. And at most times you'd want to avoid those topics um, mm-hmm. unless there's some like moral obligation that you would actually want to chime in. Yeah. So back to you being a, a graduate from college, working as a consultant with the influencer space. Tell us about that. So consultant was probably a more formal title than I would give mm-hmm. it. Right. It was, it was a lot of freelancing. Right. So mm-hmm. it was short little projects here and there on digital marketing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a, a group of, of freelancers who were really working together. And so we would deploy ourselves, right? If, if we sold something that I couldn't deliver on, I would contact that person and rope them in on the project, mm-hmm. right? And, and most of these projects are, there's standard kind of scopes of work. And so you could utilize the same labor resources pretty frequently. Uh, and so you, you kind of like build this network of freelancers that you can lean on in order to get um, larger scopes done that go beyond your own skill set. Mm-hmm. And so we did that for about uh, about eight months, and it, it led us to meeting a, a, a few entrepreneurs who were influential in the content marketing space, and um, also met uh, my my 
eventual co-founder in, in Founders, which was an online learning platform for entrepreneurs. So through my journey of working with freelancers and, and figuring out uh, how to provide value to influencers, one of the big things that we realized is that there's a lot of people out there who want to become entrepreneurs, but don't feel like they have the means to, mm -hmm. um, the skills, the community, the, just the, the learning capacity mm -hmm. or the learning content to be able to actually make it happen. Um, in 2016, this was really the start of what we, a lot of brands that we see today, right? So Y Combinator launched their own startup, you know, academy type of thing. And yeah. You have Mind Valley, who's launching business and personal development together. There's a lot of brands out there doing it, um, but we were we were kind of in that early stage, and uh, that's what brought about founders. And we built an online platform for entrepreneurs. You actually built the tech. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the tech exists today. Mm -hmm. um, it, it scaled back just a little bit because ultimately our operations grew. Uh, faster than our, our revenue did. And, mm. um, and so it's scaled back right now, but the community still exists. Um, and you can log into founders right now at F O W N D E R S.com. Nice. And to this space of educational content for entrepreneurship, do you feel like it's a saturated market or there's still room for the taking? I do think it's a saturated market. Uh, there, it's hard to differentiate information because it's so readily accessible, right? The, mm -hmm. the barrier to entry, like you can't create a moat. It's hard to create a moat around mm -hmm. information. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't want to say that you can't because there's plenty of people who are making millions and millions of dollars off of, off of information. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't feel that um, it was a differentiated enough project to, to like really put all your eggs in, in the basket. So, um, I, in 2018, I, I decided to continue with freelancing career and um, work with startups in a larger capacity beyond just marketing and, and social media. Mm -hmm. Because at Founders, I was focusing on operations, right? So it was all, pretty much all of HR and then all of uh, internal operations, business operations. And uh, I became very, very interested in the way that businesses operate and how businesses can become uh, efficient, uh, as efficient as possible. And it's, it's interesting because founders, we were a conduit to a lot of other startups, right? So I was working on a startup, but I also got to see hundreds of startups come through our program and either, you know, start and, and succeed or start and fail or start and plateau. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's almost like I started one startup, but I got to see the story unfold for hundreds of startups. All right, so it's really accelerated the, the time and experience ratio mm -hmm. uh, or experience to time ratio. And uh, I felt like I had great visibility into why startups fail, why startups succeed, and then also how, prop, how you actually ramp up business operations. Mm -hmm. And that's when, when I left Founders, I started to focus on that and work with a lot of uh, entrepreneurs in the growth stage. Um, through, uh, you know, my, my personal consulting business. Mm -hmm. in nice. So what, what were some insights that you learned from seeing all these startups come across your desk? <clears throat> wow. Well, it, it's hard to draw a silver lining through every single one. Mm -hmm. But if I were to categorize the stories, the first thing is, uh, is making sure that you, you have a very, very steady vision Mm -hmm. but you have a very agile 
uh, product at the beginning. Nice. Right? So you need to have the vision of what you're going after, the market that you're going after, and like the, the problem that you're solving on a, on a broad scale. But the way that actually manifests itself in a product may be like entirely different than what you had envisioned in your mind in like an MVP. Mm -hmm. So if you can have that balance of strong vision and not moving that vision um, with agile product and to, to where it iterates into something that's a little bit more solidified, uh, that's a very important part of it. And what I've seen um, founders do is they will, you know, they'll think about one idea and they'll either be so hell bent that it's not going to be any other way except mm -hmm. for this way. Mm -hmm. And the market doesn't grasp it because they're too rigid. Um, they're too rigid. They think they, they, they have the problem. They're the founder. They understand blah, 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 blah. But mm -hmm. you need to admit ignorance <clears throat> in that, in that, at that point and make sure mm -hmm. that you're servicing your customers. As much yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I have that issue right now at, with Forge. As the founder of Forge, I have my belief system and how the pricing is going to work. How, what is a lead cost? And let's say, for example, I am a company and you're my freelancer, you're my forager, and I hire you to go to an event in Chicago on my behalf. How, are, how am I going to pay you and how do you price yourself? Right now, it's set up as I'm going to pay you a one-time attendance fee and then a fee per lead, meaning someone that you met at the event, you said, uh, I have a great company, my friend Benji, I'd love to put you in touch. And the person said, sure, you, and you introduced me to them over email. And then I had, there's a fee per opportunity, which is if they reply and set up a call, that's like uh, from a lead, it converts into a, a sales opportunity. So there's three different tranches to how I pay you. The attendance fee, the fee per lead, and the fee per opportunity. But every different industry wants it differently. The, the, the real estate lender says, oh, I only want to do a fee per closed deal. And the marketing guy says, I only want a fee per lead. And uh, you, the lawyer wants something different versus the accountant. Everyone wants to pay for a lead differently. And I don't know how to organize everything to fit into one single platform. So that's my, one of my, that is arguably my biggest challenge right now of what, uh, off of what you said. Like I have my vision, how it should be. But then the market, which is 10 times more important than me, has different opinions. And how do I, how do I uh, swallow my beliefs and actually in, implement what they want? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially for Forge, because Forge, in my understanding of Forge, is that um, you are trying to democratize the acquisition pro process to anyone in any geographical area, mm -hmm. right? So right. you're enabling for a business, right? This acquisition process looks a lot different and you have different parts of the acquisition process. You have the marketing, you have the prospecting, you have the lead capture, you have the, the lead nurture, and then you have the close. Yeah. And if you have this on a spectrum, right? The marketer wants to be paid at the lead capture, mm -hmm. right? But the salesperson gets paid at the closure, right? So yeah. um, maybe, maybe it could be valuable to make that adjustable. Mm -hmm. where the, the freelancer can now adjust it based on whatever acquisition process that is. Mm -hmm. I like how you put it on a physical timeline. That's a really how it should be thought of like uh, the top of the funnel to the closure and where the company wants to pay everyone. Right. Every company has a different price point and, yeah. and like uh, strike price. And, and, um, that's something that we're figuring out because it hasn't been done, done before. I'm not copying and pasting another marketplace 
and just implementing their pricing model. And, and I don't really, I bet it's going to change in the next six months and six, in six years. Everything, right. it's, it's always changing. I'm sure, like, we'll get to that where you work at Uber. I'm sure Uber's pricing structure has changed so much over the last, I don't know how many years it's been around. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you just mentioned it, right? It's going to change a year, two years, three years. Mm-hmm. That brings it back to our point of great entrepreneurs are agile. They're open-minded um, to what the market actually needs. Mm-hmm. That's the most important part. Um, and that's kind of like the one huge mistake that, that I saw through founders, right? Mm-hmm. Is all these, all these startups coming through being too rigid and, and not being able to uh, create something valuable for their market. Mm-hmm. The second thing is just a strong team. Mm-hmm. You need to hire A players. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is just that. I mean, early on, I'm still very early on in my career. And um, that's something that I've recognized very, very quickly is the value of having people who are very smart, very driven um, and passionate about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That is a huge differentiator because you'll be able to persevere even through mistakes of being too rigid. Right. Mm-hmm. If you have A players who may be too rigid, sometimes they can push through that. Yeah. Uh, as long as you guide them correctly. Yeah. I have a team. I have, let's say, nine people who are independent contractors involved with Forge, and many of them are in the Philippines. And they are, I pay them per hour, and they're so much more affordable than having my friend, say you, who I give equity to who's honestly busy with his day job and kind of puts forward on the back burner with a few hours here and there on the weekend versus the person in the Philippines who sees me as their source of income, their escape from their arguably like poor circumstances and they're hungry and driven. And so like, I'm a huge proponent of the outsourcing model to the Philippines particularly. And a lot of people know that at least in my inner circle that I do this, I've hired tens and fire tens of of freelancers in the Philippines. So like a lot of people ask me, Hey, can you introduce me to people in the Philippines? And it's like turning into this, like, Hey, I, I could be like a broker between Americans and Filipinos. So why not like add that as like a, like an upsell on to the companies on forage? Wow. But, that's smart. That's very smart. Yeah. That's in the future though. So many upsells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the vision. That's the yeah. vision. Now you got to focus on product. Uh, that's interesting that you're saying this because this actually brings up something that has been on my mind recently, just generally about the future of work and mm-hmm. uh, working with it with an Uber and then specifically. Yeah. Get, well, yeah you haven't addressed that. Like Brian works at Uber. Yes. Uh, specifically I work in Uber works is the line of business that I work with. Mm-hmm. What's and, that? Uberworks is a, a labor platform that connects businesses with reliable staffing. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if a food production uh, manufacturing uh, event company needs staffing, um, mm-hmm. we are able to provide it in, in less than 24 hours or really whenever you would need it. We have an on-demand function and then we also have a scheduled function um, where we see a lot of the orders coming in now that are a little bit more scheduled because we're focusing on um, specific industries that prefer that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can also service that on-demand function. And uh, right, it's just like Uber rides, right? You can open up an app and request um, workers and they uh, show up ready to do the job. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It is so, very cool. Yeah, I have so many questions about Uber works. Like, 
one, why would Uber tackle another market when the right, the transportation industry is so large? Why diversify and go into another field? Yeah, I think that 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 is um, it's it's kind of a a philosophy that I think Dara is is adopting, and he did this actually at Expedia as well. Is making sure that you have a strong portfolio of mm-hmm. a business because if you can diversify more, it just makes your business less uh, dependent on one function of the business. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a there's a lot of fundamental things that Uber Rides has created that can be applied to other markets, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Everyone, I think, I mean, everyone's heard of an entrepreneur that has created some idea where it's Uber for X. Yeah. Right? And it, 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 there's one company that should be very good at creating Uber for X's and it's Uber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and I resist so, from saying Uber Forge is Uber for outside sales reps. I resist that because people are like, oh, Uber for, like, don't say that. But it's exactly what it is. Just you, using the internet to connect people who are, you know, platform technology that's on demand, right? These Mm -hmm. are the two kind of value props of, of Uber that people just use Uber to describe, right? They're really like, uh, it's a word that catches the features of Mm -hmm. of product or business would do. Yeah. It's lucky for Uber. It's that it's not Lyft of X or TaskRabbit of X or DoorDash (laughs) of X. Yeah. Yeah, it is good branding. Mm-hmm. Um, Uber has caught uh, a branding swing um, just from like, you know, colloquial sense. Yeah. It's free marketing. Mm. A lot of people who uh, have reached out to me in the last 24 hours saying, oh, Benji, you got to read this book, that book. And it's all uh, looking at the back and reading about it, the little blurb on Amazon. It's all about how marketplaces, these online platforms are taking over the world. And similar to Peter Thiel's concept of zero to one, how the marketplaces are really monopolies and you, you have to avoid competition, competitions for losers. I'd love to hear your thought on online platforms and how they're the, the next wave of innovation and business models in, in the world today. Yeah, well, our generation for our I would say that our generation is a generation of convenience. And one thing that platforms uh, give one side of the market is a lot of convenience. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side of the market, it gives uh, a huge, a huge population access to a gig economy work, right? Or mm-hmm. incremental income or alternative income, whatever you want to talk to call yeah. it. Um, and both of those, right, there's two value propositions to diff- different populations that prefer different things, mm-hmm. right? Maybe on, on, the, on the worker side or the supply side, uh, there's people who are, enjoy flexibility. Maybe they're working on a side project, right? Um, there's tons and tons of stories on the supply side that give value to someone who would sign up and, you know, deliver groceries on Instacart or mm-hmm. drive for Uber or work on Uber Works. Um, or attend an event on forage or, or attend an event on forage. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that that exists and also gives a, the population of people who uh, are craving, um, convenience, mm-hmm. um, you know, groceries at their doorstep or, a, a, you know, a ride in front of your building, mm-hmm. um, in the matter of minutes or hours is, is phenomenal. Right. Yeah. So, uh, the power of the platform is, is strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that I don't see these things going away. That's for sure. Yeah. They'll, they'll remain powerful. 
Yeah, I agree. I feel like the coronavirus has opened people's eyes to the fa- of the convenience of remote work. Like companies are still operating and everyone's working from home. We don't really need to be sitting next to each other when we have our laptops and Slack and Zoom. And people know that deep down, but they don't want to risk their employees working from home because they feel like they're going to be slacking off. But I feel like if you are motivated and there's an incentive for you to work hard and hustle that I, I, I feel like in 10 years from now, the whole concept of like working from an office is going to be radically different. Like most people will work from home and have home offices at a different degree of just like my desk in the corner of my room. And it's like, everything's going to be distributed more than it is today. It's like, yeah. it's, mm-hmm, it's not going anywhere. No, no, it's, it, it's likely. I do think that there are cultural benefits to, to having a centralized place where, you know, people come into work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, despite the fact that I'm, I'm working from home and enjoying it and in the comforts of my PJs sometimes when, mm-hmm. when I am working, I do really like going into the office still. I really yeah. like having uh, people that I work around, right? When I, I'm very productive here at home because I get to focus. Mm-hmm. But one thing that motivates me in the office is I get to see the people that I'm working with working just as hard as me. Mm-hmm. Uh, culturally, that is motivating. Yeah. Like I have let's say 10 people on my Slack channel for Forge. And a lot of them I've never met. And like, nah, that's not true. Let's say like three of them I've never met and in the Philippines. And there's a con to not being able to work with your people all at a, at a singular location. Like, I, I feel like it's great because I can work whenever I want. And I know they're hustling, but there is a diff, there is a detriment to not being able to work from one location and I, I feel like I, I experienced that firsthand. It sucks yeah. sometimes. I, I wonder, and I haven't done the research to back this up, but uh, I would love to know like, what the, the retention rate of employees mm. in uh, work from home versus retention of employees that don't work from home versus mm. you know, a policy that's in between. Yeah. Uh, one thing that is important for retention is making sure that you have social bonds with the people that you're working with. Yeah. Right? You actually feel loyal to this person because you go out to lunch with them or they make you laugh or, mm-hmm. you know, it's fun or they showed you that you, they, they actually care about who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I'm guessing that that's a little bit harder to do through a zoom screen yeah. um, as opposed to in person. Interesting. All right. So t- tell us about what are some things you're learning about at Uber right now at Uber works. Well, one thing, uh, and it kind of ties back to uh, some of the work that I was doing in freelancing is uh, kind of along with my marketplace role, I, I, I love to analyze and see how um, business operations can get better, mm-hmm. right? And so um, kind of in my free time or like on the weekend, I'll read books about business operations. And one of the philosophies that I've um, increasingly become uh, a proponent of is holacracy. What's that? And so holacracy is a, uh, a self-management philosophy. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a rule-based autonomous self-management philosophy mm-hmm. where um, you distribute authority to your team um, and they have the means to go make the decisions that they need to, as opposed to have like a hard hierarchy of approvals. Mm-hmm. And um, so Zappos is, is most known to adopt this uh, kind of operation philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, I, I've read a book, it's called Holoxy by Brian Robinson. And uh, it, I, I just am so bought in on, on this working um, within UberWorks and in other companies as well. Um, and so uh, while I'm also doing marketplace and balancing supply and demand dynamics in different geographies, mm-hmm. I also am looking at how can our, my, my team and then UberWorks as a whole and then potentially Uber as a whole, um, get more efficient with the way that they're, they're operate, mm-hmm. operating and leave the kind of like hierarchical um, consensus approval type of format and distribute authority to uh, managers and um, you know, direct reports of managers to make decisions and make sure that they have the means to make those decisions. And one of the examples that they, they use is if Benji Sklar was, was living in Chicago, mm-hmm. right, you wouldn't have to ask permission of the mayor to go grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. Right? You would just go right. do it because you know this is what you have to do. That's the means to you getting the job done to where you can go to your work and be fed. Mm-hmm. And, you know what I'm saying? Like you're not yeah. asking permission. You yeah. need to enable people to operate within a rule base, right? Mm-hmm. The mayor has a certain amount of rules, right? Federal law as well. This is what our legal system does. And then people operate within that. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there brings a lot of you know mistakes, and you're you're going to get you're going to make the wrong decision here and there. But the rule-based system is iterative, right? So mm-hmm. every week you meet and you constantly iterate on that rule, that rule mm-hmm. constitution, and you get to a place where your business has the proper barriers on certain functions of the business, but you still get this benefit of people not having to wait two weeks for you know the ceo to sign off on something to mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so preserve the agility um but but still gives you the the safety of knowing that decisions are made, being do, you think, made. do you think people would lose their jobs because their job is to manage and appro- be the person to approve uh, i i think that they can be reutilized right mm-hmm. i mean i managers are, are very smart people they have a certain skill set um, and, and those managers can be re- reutilized in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there won't be this like extinct extinction of managers. Mm-hmm. But those <laughs> be, their, their, uh, their role will just evolve, mm-hmm. evolve to uh, making sure that the rules are, are properly mapped out. That, mm-hmm. that yeah, the wheel, that's the function that's actually evolving. This thing is being uh, run the correct way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, right. Managers will probably get their hands dirty um, mm-hmm. and do some of the work that their direct reports are doing as well. What are some other ideologies that you're interested in right now? You got holacracy. Give me some other in, other things that you're interested in right now. Big picture on the philosophy level. On the philosophy level, uh, well, it, it kind of bridges the professional and personal space. Does that does that suffice? That's fine. Okay. Um, one, one concept that I've been reading about um, in a book called Flow by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, have you heard of that book? No, tell me about it. Great, great book. Um, I actually called my dad and he told me, I, I introduced you to that book 15 uh-huh. years ago. <laughs> and I read that, um, so it's funny that I'm reading it now, but for the last few years, I've become interested in how I can get more output of just me, Ryan. <laughs> and um, there's this concept of flow that um, where, where Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi talks about athletes and professionals and rock climbers and all, you know, recreational athletes as well. Um, 
they access this flow when they're deeply, deeply concentrated on a task. Mm -hmm. And um, you reach like multiples of productivity when you're in this state. And so I, I want to figure out, and I'm kind of in the beginning, beginning stages of becoming intentional about this. I've talked about it for quite some time, um, but I want to find ways where I can uh, access flow very, very easily and kind of have a recipe for accessing it to where I can hit these multiple levels of productivity. Wow. That's fascinating. What are, are they going to be? What do you think are the ingredients to hit that level of flow? And it, does that does that look like you're sitting in front of your computer screen, listening to music, and you're just typing a million messages on email and Slack and screenshotting images and sending recommendations? Because like, that's to me what would flow would mean, like just right. like, pro, like just cool new projects and the actual bullet point to do list behind them. Yeah. Uh, so Miali Chiksemi talks about how it requires extreme focus. Mm-hmm. So it's not the sending Slack messages and then flipping over to email, then going back to that document that you're writing and writing the business plan. Mm-hmm. It's actually about closing out all of that, mm-hmm. opening up your business plan to where it's the only thing on your screen, mm-hmm. right? Shutting off your phone, putting it in airplane mode. It's not enough just to put it on airplane mode, mm-hmm. put it in your bag to where it's literally not in your sight mm-hmm. because there's a lot of sub- subconscious effort that goes into taking in distractions that you don't even consciously know are distracting you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm trying to figure out like this ideal workspace where I can go deep on something as opposed to uh, shallow on multiple things. Mm. Right. So that's where I think I can get the best out of my mind is I, I would write a much better business plan. If I had Slack close my phone away mm-hmm. and no distractions, headphones in for instance, mm-hmm then you know getting tapped on the shoulder then a phone call from my parents or a coworker, slack mm-hmm. message um, i won't be able to get into that deep flow mm-hmm. and i believe that a lot of that productivity comes like the greatest work and you kind of build mental momentum right mm-hmm. you kind of like have this house of cards inside your head and as soon as you get distracted all of that goes mm-hmm. out, out of your head mm-hmm. right because when you're writing a business plan you need to know how it flows. Mm-hmm. It needs to flow out of you. Like yeah. That's what that's what great writing comes from is when mm-hmm. you write a paragraph that doesn't seem like the next paragraph is entirely different than what you just wrote. Mm-hmm. Right? That type of writing happens when you get super distracted. But if you're not super distracted, you're focused, then you can write something that that feels like it there's like some synthesis between mm-hmm. you know, the the house of cards that you have. So if you did find that flow on a consistent basis, what would you be working on and what do you think would come from that? Well, I think it would actually have to do with holacracy. I believe, I believe that I also think that a part of accessing this flow is, is making sure that you have some like very authentic um, passion for, for the project. So mm-hmm. building out some business operations framework for how uh, you know, holacracy could work in an organization that has the right amount of, of challenge. It has mm-hmm. the right amount of passion and um, the right amount of required work to do to be able to produce something big time that could have some mm-hmm. major impacts mm-hmm. in terms of how a business operates. Um, that could be your thing. This could be your thing. You could be the guy who brings holacracy to corporate America. 
this is this is kind of the this is what I fall asleep at night to. Wow, amazing. <laughs> How would you even go about it? Like messaging the head of HR for Fortune 500 companies and you have a, an amazing speech and you go into their board that the meeting with all hands deck and you give your speech and everyone's like, "Wow, that guy's cool. That was a great meeting." And then it goes back to normal. How do you how do you hack that? Yeah, and, and I think this is actually how all great ideas come about. Um, whether it's internal in a major corporation, public traded company, or whether it's someone in their garage, right, testing out an idea, um, making sure that you can experiment on a small scale mm-hmm. and show the, the benefits to the bottom line, mm-hmm. right? So a company like Uber wouldn't implement holacracy across the board from a good pitch, yeah. right, um, or, or theory. They want to see it work in real time. Yeah. Um, this is discussions that I've had internal at UberWorks as well. A lot of, you know, my leadership has given guidance on whenever I talk about holacracy is making sure that we can experiment with this at a small scale, mm-hmm. prove that it actually works and that the benefits, we can tangibly see the benefits, whether in productivity, right, or bottom line, right, mm-hmm. financial benefits. Um, and then once that is proven, we can move to that second second macrocosm, mm-hmm. right? Which is Uber works as a whole, or maybe another department. And mm-hmm. then if Uber works sees those benefits, right? Whether it's productivity output or, or financial benefits, we can move to that next macrocosm, which maybe Uber as a whole, right? But probably not, probably just another Uber team. Mm-hmm. But if that idea can be replicated very easily um, and implemented into say, uh, you, know, you know, just the marketplace team, mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. just Uber works to just Uber, then it could be replicated into other corporate environments mm-hmm. as well. Probably in that same uh, type of mm-hmm. scale. Start small, expand, and then go for it. Yeah, I'm thinking about my uh, Forge, my company. We are super early stage, super small team. Let's say where there's ten of us. Uh, there's someone responsible for web development, someone for UI and design, someone for social media, someone for marketing. There's me. There's and are you saying what holacracy would look like is if none of them reported to me, meaning we really worked together, but they were their own CEO. They were the, the web developer designed new features and just uh, uploaded them without my approval. And the designer designed new pages and without my approval and the marketer uploaded blogs and content without my approval. And everyone's just ran their own company essentially under the same umbrella. And because of that autonomy, they everyone would be more independent uh productive and uh, would feel better and would be happier that's what you're saying that's the philosophy i I like that i mean like that's fascinating i would have to get over the level of trust and like that they were doing the right thing yes so so it's it's partly what you said but it's it's partly not one one component that you you mentioned is reporting Mm -hmm. and reporting really is just like a sequence of information sharing Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. it's just like one person tells the next person, and the next, and like you just have to t- say it in that sequence for information to flow up and down, yeah. right? right. The, the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But reporting is just like reporting is just information sharing, and then like also you know uh, authority to you know fire or hire someone. Mm-hmm. That's really what like manager duties is is all about, if you boil it down. Mm-hmm. Um, but your second point about having people kind of run off and run their own businesses. It's not quite like that, but it may be at the beginning. At the mm-hmm. beginning of holacracy, and that, that's the greatest thing about this is 
um, you're going to have times where your designer is going to, you know, design something and deploy these designs and your website designers, your website um, developer may be like, what the fuck, man? Like, mm-hmm. you can't just do that. You know, yeah. you got to like consult me. Mm-hmm. But these are the workflow tensions that something like Holacracy surfaces up to where now you can see how your organization is interconnected. Mm. Right. So mm. we just set an example between a designer and a, a web developer. But imagine if there was a designer, a web developer, an email marketer, a, you know, PPC, a, you know, SEO type of professional. Now you really see how all of these people work together mm-hmm. and you can right in the next week of a governance meeting, you can come to this governance meeting and be like, Hey, you know, Sarah ran off and posted a design and you know, Haley, you know, had no idea. Mm-hmm. So why don't we actually put in a rule that the last step to a designer posting anything is just making sure that they're checking in with the web developer that it's okay. Mm-hmm. But then right? doesn't that go back to the system of up and down approval? So everything is flat with clock, mm-hmm. right? So for instance, um, that designer, if, if we were in a regular hierarchical um, type of, of format, uh, structure organizational structure that designer would actually have to go to their designer manager mm-hmm. and that designer manager may have some opinions about this design so they mm-hmm. decide to go to the head of design mm-hmm. who uh, i don't know should we do this or should we not oh let's ask the ceo mm-hmm. and the ceo says well you know i think this has to do with the web developer let me rope in the web developer mm-hmm. it literally took five additional steps to you getting the right person to come in and, and like approve something Right. It's so like the hierarchical structure is it's limiting the vertical movement of approvals, but there will still be lateral uh, approvals, right? Mm-hmm. Because the team has to integrate in some capacity or else you're just going to be running an absolute shit show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the lateral approvals will still exist. But mm-hmm. what Holacracy does is it gives authority for someone to make the final decision within their domain of work. Mm-hmm. So that designer can make that decision at the low at the local level as opposed to escalating all the way up to build consensus mm-hmm. and then get an approval and move, which is typically how mm-hmm. organizational structure mm-hmm. works. It requires this, you know, consensus. Everyone thinks it's good, so it's ready to go. Mm-hmm. I feel like the US government should read that book and implement it. Yes. Yes. How would that look? Oh well <laughs> That, that I would have to give more thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but actually they, they give an example of, and actually uh, there's some like holacracy consultants. There's probably hundreds of holacracy consultants that have taken training. And I, I hope to take one of these trainings one day uh, th- where they're actually working with some government bodies uh, mm-hmm. in, at, at like a local level, right? Like mm-hmm. city states. Amazing. Barry, come say hi to Brian. She doesn't want to. All right, right, Brian. Well, time has come. Before I let you go, give us where can people find you? uh, And then I'll ask the second question. Where can people find you? (laughs) Where can people find me? People can find me on uh, LinkedIn. uh, Mm -hmm. Relatively active on LinkedIn. You can also find me on Instagram at B underscore Ragone. Or Twitter. I also also tweet quite a bit. Really? Uh, I need to go. B underscore Ragone. I don't tweet at all. I just feel awkward. I have no, no experience with Twitter. I'm just so foreign to it. But when I'm sitting in law school class, I see everyone in front of me on Twitter. So I know it's super popular and a huge thing. But besides that, and politics, 
and VCs, I just feel like that's like not in my world. So I'll get on that thing. So before you go, what, give us some, uh, words of wisdom. What are some things that you want to share? If these were the last things you got to say to last things I got to say before coronavirus gets me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What would you say? Um, wow. Uh, Hmm. What would I say? What would I? What would I say about on my coronavirus bed? Um, I, you know, one thing that for for the first few years of my career, I, I, uh, I was very much, I, I very much had no balance mm-hmm. um, in my life. Like I was fully bought in on work, mm-hmm. um, and certainly saw the benefits of being fully bought in on work. But um, one thing that I've been working on is making sure that you have that balance. Um, and lately, uh, I've felt very strong in my family relationships, very strong in the friendships that I have, making sure that I'm investing time in there, right? Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of advice where, you know, hack the hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, the hustle includes building relationships with the people that you love. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's part of the hustle. Like, if you want to be a good hustler, you've got to also still find that balance, um, it's, it's something that I continue to work on, um, but work is such an important part of my life, um, but making sure that I'm investing time in, in personal things as well, right? Your health, your diet, um, your friendships, and your family, mm-hmm. uh, because those things actually feed back into your professional career. Well, you just made me want to call some people right now. That was inspiring. I needed to hear that. It was really good. Amazing, Brian. This was an awesome podcast. I admire the hell out of you. Really respect you. Appreciate the time and we'll stay in touch. Thanks for the time. Everybody say goodbye to Brian. (laughs) Thanks, Benji. Thanks for having me.